You're listening to Neurodiversity at Work. You have landed at Neurodiversity with Theo Smith, co-author of the award-winning book Neurodiversity at Work and LinkedIn Top Voice. From heartfelt personal stories to enlightening expert insights, we will explore the world of neurodiversity and neuroinclusion, celebrating the uniqueness of diverse minds. Let's get on with the show. And welcome to another episode of Neurodiversity with Theo Smith and my wonderful friends, the incredible people who come along every couple of weeks to share their insights, their stories, their narrative around neurodiversity, the concept, neuroinclusion, what it means to them, how it impacts them, their lives, the work they do, their journey, the fascinating things people share. That actually, four years ago when I started this, people weren't really sharing those stories in business, in life. And we weren't really hearing the positive framing of neurodiversity and neuroinclusion um, within our working world. So today, it is an absolute pleasure to invite somebody who is doing incredible work in the world of work um, and has been a great advocate and is always happy to uh, talk and share and engage with the wider community. Tanya Martin, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on. Why don't you just give people a little introduction to those who've not had the pleasure of meeting you or seeing you um, or hearing about the work that you do? Excellent. Thank you, Theo. Um, And the first thing I want to say is how am I going to match your energy through this? Because you always have so much energy and I love it. So, um, uh, yeah. So introduce myself. I am Tanya Martin. I am the head of our Neurodiverse Centre of Excellence at uh, EY. Uh, An incredibly unique role. Um, and title and I have had the absolute privilege of uh, working in the neurodiversity space within a big corporate um, over the last two and a half years. Um, I myself have ADHD so I have lived experience of this Um, so I guess it's it's almost blurring the professional and the personal um, merging them together um, and leading something that is really driving change across the organization in the UK and um, so a very very exciting place to be. Amazing and just to put that into context you know organizations for the past I don't know eight nine ten years have focused on programs to uh, include individuals uh, who may be autistic uh, as a prime example um, this was driven mm-hmm. by organizations like Specialistern um, in Europe into some of the big tech companies across the globe However, I'd say one of the big challenges has been how to bring that into kind of business as usual, how to bring some of these autism programs to neuro-inclusive programs that are really stretching beyond um, the the single line of perhaps those individuals who've not been able to get into work to individuals who are already in work as well, but absolutely do need help. And uh, I'm just highlighting a little bit of the background there. Because um, from what I've seen and the work that you've been doing and the um, pleasure that I've had of, of seeing some of that firsthand uh, is that you have started to shift the dial um, um, at personally in terms of the work that you do uh, and the work that EY's been doing to uh, ensure that it is not just an autism program um, and that it is a, a, a pilot program that has legs to move beyond the, the pilot program, which has been really exciting, right? And I, I don't want to devalue anything else that's been done over the eight to 10 years because all of that work helps us and it's been some good sharing to get to where we are today. Yeah. We really, seem, especially in the UK, seem to be shifting um, in, in a real quick, positive direction uh, from what I'm seeing. More to be done, but from, from some very big organisations we're starting to see the fruits, I think, of some of that labour. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And um, if you ask me what success looked like two years ago compared to what success looks like today, it is very different. Um, and I think that just shows how quickly things have evolved um, in terms of our approach to neurodiversity. So the, the neurodiverse centres of excellence are not a new concept for why they've been um, going for the last eight years. They did start as an autism at work programme in the US. Um, and I think it was recognised by our, our global lead here in Shukla that actually to broaden them out to neurodiversity, there's obviously a lot of co-occurrence. Um, uh, we shouldn't rule people out who require that extended support in the workplace. And this is what the NCOEs have all been about. It's about extended support. Um, but I think uh, we in the UK only set up uh, two years ago and the thinking has definitely evolved. It's evolved from... Um, initially thinking, right, we're going to grow a number of these centres to actually what has happened is we have taken the learning. So it's almost it wasn't a pilot. It, it was never a pilot, but it has been a place to pilot certain um, approaches to neurodiversity within the organisation. So my passion and i i talk about ripples a lot so what are the ripples we're making elsewhere because you're absolutely right there are there are two parts to this there's the how do you break down the barriers to entry into an organization for those who are neurodivergent because people often get stuck at the recruitment process but also how do you help those that are hidden in plain sight within an organization so um so the, the dial has definitely shifted to that 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 plain sight piece um, in terms of some of the ripples that we have made as a result of, of uh, setting up our NCOE. Um, the biggest place I think that, that I've uh, actively involved, been involved in is recruitment. Um, how do we think differently about recruitment? How do we um, almost break the recruitment process a little bit to try and uh, make it, it more inclusive? How do we change the narrative externally in terms of how we attract candidates? Um, how do we um, ensure our job descriptions are written in a way that people engage with them and aren't put off applying to us? How do we make sure that the process is, is accessible as possible? Um, how do you make adjustments as standard as opposed to something that you want to you need to ask for um so it has been a it's been an incredibly exciting place for me to personally get involved in um working alongside our, our talent team um in terms of of testing some some new ideas as to how we might do things differently and those are slowly filtering down into to, to the broader recruitment process and so not just for our neurodiverse centers of excellence. Um, but the, uh, the business are definitely getting on board with neuro inclusion um, and thinking differently about how we might approach things from a recruitment perspective. Yeah. And there's something really fascinating, I think, happened in the last couple of years. I can't remember the exact point. But EY acquired what I would say um, some very incredible talent within the recruitment space as well and built out yes. a, a kind of a, a focus around talent acquisition where it decided. I, I, I mean, I, I don't I have not had the conversations with anybody to know what was going on behind the scenes. But more from what I was seeing was it acquired people who I respected within the industry because I've been involved in that community. And it seemed to go out and hire some of the best, most prominent um, individuals at a senior level to cover several different areas of its talent acquisition strategy and business and functions. And it sounds like at a similar time, the Neurodiversity Centre of Excellence, right? it was almost like this big drive to say talent acquisition for us has just shifted to be a major priority and we're going to invest big. Uh, and in the UK yeah. specifically, I'm talking about because this is where I saw the shift. Um, and that was really exciting to see. It was exciting to see um, prominent individuals who I had a lot of respect for getting really prominent positions within a leading organization, um, but also yeah. bringing them together across these different areas of like senior hires, grad recruitment, the overall strategy. Um, neurodiversity center for excellence so just it's it, I, i'm more noting that for individuals say something happened at a period of time where 
we're now probably seeing a lot of that work come to fruition um, or yes. go to the next phase of, of development and growth and change and transformation, um, which is exciting to see. Absolutely. And I, I think, um, so Sam Ramsey, our, our head of experienced hire, who I think you alluded to just there, um, yeah. her and I had a, a fantastic conversation where I literally, I went to her and I said, this is what I've seen. This is how we might want to think about doing this differently. Um, I I said about ripping up the rule book in terms of how, how we approach recruitment. Um, and, and she sat there and she said, well, basically what you're asking me for is an anti-recruitment process. I know that phase is always is stuck in my head because I was like, yep, yeah, I love that. Um, and she was absolutely on board in terms of trying it, which in itself is incredibly refreshing, particularly for, for a large organisation like EY, where change can sometimes be quite slow. Um, and innovation like that, giving being given the opportunity to test something, to pilot something, to see what works. Uh, was was a real, um, as I say, a real privilege to be able to work with with her and her team on this, um, and drive forward some change. And and what was even more, um, I think, for me and and uh, for Jem, who also worked on the project, um, what was really validating is we won a, we won a couple of rad awards for the work that we did. Um, so it wasn't just internal, it was recognised externally that actually we were doing something different. Um, and uh, yeah, that external validation was, was a really nice um, pat on the back for, for the, the, the innovative, in, innovative thinking that, that we were doing as an organisation in this space. Yeah, exactly. And, and you mentioned Chairman there as well. And you're getting the team uh, that are fully committed to uh, making, you know, real sustainable change. People who have real passion about uh, the topic and have, have done way before uh, this came about. Um, from all the conversations I yeah. have with incredible individuals at these events, you can see it. And when you bring these people together, that, that's where you start to see the impact of change and where organisations commit to employing very specific individuals that have a mission, they're mission-driven based on, on um, inclusivity um, and, and neuro-inclusion, yeah. I think is really important. So let's just take it back then, um, and we'll get back to some of the actual specifics around the, the work and what happened and, and kind of where we're up to and some of the positives and maybe what came out of uh, assessing for the awards, what, you know, what it is we did, what, what did we achieve and what are the next steps because mm -hmm. i think that's interesting for the audience um but tanya tell us a little bit about you right where did life start for tanya <laughs> you know before you you know um all this time at ey and some really prominent important roles time in recruitment yeah. uh you know, again at michael page for the short while i think um and a, a, yeah. a degree was it psychology I, um I or, or in that yeah. so give, us a, give us some insight into who tanya is from a personal perspective and maybe your journey yeah. to understanding your wonderful brain and uh where some of the challenges opportunities and strengths were and, and how you've then uh given the value that you've given to ey and the, and the neurodiversity community yeah, absolutely. And it makes me laugh. I obviously jumped straight into my passion, which is it's just how can I change the world uh, or, or fix corporate in this space? Um, yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, I, I got an ADHD diagnosis. I've got an ADHD diagnosis myself. Um, and um, it was a bit of a journey getting that. And actually, as I look back on my career, I can see um, how how it has uh, impacted my career um in terms of the the jobs that I've done so um I I've been with EY for, for 10 years this year uh, and I've been in the NCOE uh, for the last two and a half years um, and prior to that uh, I was involved in a number of um, different projects and if I look back now I can I can absolutely see my ADHD brain in, in action so not only do I get bored really quickly um, so I, I might have been with EY for 10 years, but I've done multiple jobs throughout that time. Um, but 
what always interests me is process improvement. So looking at something, understanding how it works, not going into a huge amount of detail. I, I like enough detail so I understand it. Um, pulling it apart and then putting it back together in terms of making some recommendations going forward. And if I look back over the jobs that I've done at EY over the last 10 years or so, a lot of them fall into that bucket. Um, but they're all new things. So I've done everything from organisational design to um, offshoring strategy to managing our uh, uh, revenue planning process to um, SAP implementations. So real broad yes real broadness in terms of um of of what i picked up um and for me my brain loves a new challenge um it likes to be learning uh and i think it was recognized and the people i work for recognized that when i started to get bored they needed to direct me somewhere else and then I'll just pick it up and run with it. Um, so it, from that perspective, I've, I've been incredibly fortunate to have uh, a successful career where I am um, and the variety that I need to stay. Um, from a diagnosis perspective, um, I think the reason why I joined the NCOE is because despite my success at EY, I've always had this feeling of not quite fitting, not quite uh, um, being able to keep up, just, and that, that's not true, I've, I've been an exceptional performer for multiple years, um, but there was something about me that just felt like I didn't quite fit. So I've always had this real passion uh, around people and um, just making them or helping them feel like they they belong or they've got a safe space to talk the whole way through covid uh, i ran a a meeting for a number of of um my team where i'd bring them onto a call every thursday morning and we'd literally just sit there and what's good what's bad it, it, personal professional let's just talk about these things so i've always had this draw to wanting to help make people feel safe at work um, and give them that safe space to just really share everything about themselves as opposed to just this professional front that sometimes can be expected. So I had this draw to, to join the NCOE. I didn't have my ADHD diagnosis at that point in time. Um, and typical Tanya, I was like, All right, this is a, a new space for me. I better learn about it. So I stuck myself on a course. Um, and as I was doing it, I was like, oh, my goodness me, I tick quite a lot of these boxes. Um, uh, so I actually sent the, um, a list of, of, uh, traits to my ex-husband without any heading on it. And I said, have a read of this. And he read it and he went, well, that's you on a piece of paper. And I was like, I know. Wow. <laughs> and because of the role I was in and the people I was talking to, I, I felt like, um, I had to know one way or the other. Um, so I sought a diagnosis pretty quickly. Uh, I know that's incredibly privileged of me to be able to do that. Um, but I was like, I can't stand up in this space, talk about this, um, have a team that are neurodivergent and not know myself. So I was really keen to do that. Um, I think looking back, uh, if I look at uh, a the fact that I jumped around quite a lot in in, in my career, it's been very squiggly. I've, I've never really settled on one thing. I'm a, a generalist through and through in terms of um, uh, previous roles. Um, if I look back at, at at school, I was I was uh, I was bright, so I got missed um, in terms of of picking up this diagnosis. Uh, if I look back at my G, at my A level reports um it was very obvious now reading them um when i got to that point in in my education where i had to plan things i had to organize things i had to meet deadlines all of that couldn't do it it, it came out really really strongly in my a levels and i messed my a levels up and it it stuck with me in my whole entire career is like i i've always been trying to prove that i'm better than my a level results because as i said i was a, a bright child and i should have done better than i did um, but as a, a female, and this happens quite a lot, um, 
I have struggled my whole life, but I've struggled with anxiety and depression. So at the age of 13, I was hospitalised um, with anxiety and depression. Uh, and actually, there's a huge co-occurrence between mental health and ADHD. And I think often I thought, right, I can fix that. I'll fix it. And then it kept coming back. It kept coming back. And I was just stuck in this constant cycle of right. Here it is again. I don't know why I I can't I can't deal with this. Why can I not get myself out of this? Um, so whilst the success is there and I've been driven and I've I've absolutely pushed myself and I've I've done really well, it has come at a personal cost. I have burnt out in, in numerous times. I have fallen over numerous times with just complete overwhelm with life and. Um, and for me, the ADHD diagnosis was that final piece of the puzzle. It provided the explanation as to why I struggled, why I find certain situations difficult, why I find it really hard to say no, why I find organisation and planning really challenging. And it means that I used to extend my work hours in order to try and keep up. Um, so it has been, um, I think, life life changing it has been life changing and I, I don't want to say that in a really cliched way but it has for me it's made the difference between um struggling and actually going I I understand myself better now I understand um how my brain works and I understand that do you know what there's some things that you're not going to train me out of I simply am never going to be able to do them very well but what that doesn't take away is from me is all the things they do excel at um, and and focusing on the things that I love to do. Um, yeah, I, I do great things when when I'm focused on those things. That's brilliant. That was a and very long explanation there, Theo. No, 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 it's good. It's a good explanation. And I like the journey. And I think, I think what's really uh, important to, to highlight there is individuals can make assumptions that you know you work for your wife 10 years you're in a prominent role um you have done some fascinating things um it's probably one of the uh, one of the big respected organizations in the world for the work that it does for its prominence for its level of visibility at the top of organizations uh, and therefore people can make the assumption that uh, the Therefore, there is no challenge for you. Do you understand what I mean? That there is no barrier for you. That where does the anxiety and the stress and the um, but in, in actual fact, what you talked about there was that this has existed from a very early age as a as a young person, and um, from a number of reasons, you found maybe coping mechanisms that may not have been positive for your mental health and well-being. So just because you find the yeah. coping mechanism doesn't mean it's a good one. Right, it could be a distraction from um, dealing with the problem at hand, and therefore you don't think about it as much. But like you said, you keep falling down, and, and you can't quite figure out why you keep falling down. Well, it's because, for example, you might you know use drink, or you might use um, uh, uh, eating, or you might use lack of exercise, or staying in bed. Well, there's so many different things that you can use to block out the noise, the stress, the anxiety. Yeah. And then dealing with the problem, and I and I think it's exactly that thing that we miss. That is the understanding of what is going on um, emotionally, neurologically, environmentally, and when you start to understand those things, that is, that is, and you say you know life changing, life affirming. So the diagnosis mm. in that instance has prov provided you with the um, a bit of. I don't know, maybe it, and you tell me, right, I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking this through from all the conversations that we've had. Maybe it means that you're a bit easier on yourself, you know, and uh, love yourself yeah. a bit more. I, I don't know, you tell me. Yeah, and, and you're, you're absolutely right, because what was really interesting when I got my diagnosis, A, I thought it was going to be the silver bullet and I just fixed my brain and I was now going to get medication and I was going to be absolutely fine and life was going to be rosy. Um, it wasn't uh, like that. So um, what I, I 
think the first thing I did was I used it as a bit of like, hey, you, all of you people that have given me a hard time. So my family, my my poor husband, all of those people. Um, right. You now need to give me a break because this is the reason why I sometimes behave the way I behave. And therefore, uh, you should be kinder to me as a result. So it, the, at first, it was very much about that external right, you you need to understand me better, which is quite an interesting way. Now I reflect back on it, that that is where my brain went. Um, so I spent a lot of time trying to explain to people why my brain worked the way it worked. In a period of time where I was also trying to understand how does my brain work? Um, and I always remember, and, and a lot of people that are late diagnosed, I've had conversations with them, when you tell work, and I did disguise at work, obviously, you, you sometimes get asked, well, what do you need? And I'm like, I have absolutely no idea. Like, literally no idea. I have been masking this for years. I have no idea how to unpack this and cope with this. Um, you need to give me time to figure that out. Um, so so there was definitely at the start that, that external, right, be nicer to me. But as it's gone on, it's there's this been I've had I've had a lot of coaching and therapy around it. And I think that's really important to try and get your your head into a space, understand it a bit better. Um, and somebody very wise said to me, you do realise that you're not going to fix this. And that was a really hard lesson for me um, because I that's what I do. I fix things. I, process improvement is my passion. That's what I do for a living. Um, and I think I've spent my whole life trying to fix me out of, of, of the way I've, I've felt. And um, when I finally accepted that, and it took a little while, it, it, it wasn't quick, um, I started to just be kinder to me. I started to um, just go, do you know what? Yeah, I haven't exercised three times this week, but I'm not very good at consistency. But next week, I'll probably exercise five times. And that's OK. And and just being OK with that sort of 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 uh, stuff is it just makes life just feel a little bit easier. I stopped beating myself up as much as I used to. I think it's interesting the cycle that you go through, and I think um, every, everybody will have their own cycle of what they need to go through. Uh, mm. And we talk about it. You know, it might be at first, at some people I know, uh, talking with my cousin in a past episode, I think mm. he went through a lot of like anger, um, at, like mm. lost opportunities and breakdown of relationships and his, his um, marriage and all these things that there was, a, uh, there was some anger there that, that needed to be dealt with. Yeah. And for other people, it's maybe immediate acceptance and validation, and but but there's still like a journey. It's like any curve uh, of transformation, right? Some people can go through it really quickly, uh, yes, and other yeah. people, you know, they have, it will take them many, many, many years because of some of the trauma um, yep. or some of the loss. And and I think it's really important to understand that, and not to say to any person that like this is the time frame that you need to move through this period it's like because it will be different for every single person yeah and and what I believe about it today might be different to what I believe about it tomorrow because it is a journey um and I think that's one of the things from a a neuro inclusion perspective in an organization is is that ability to sit listen understand and and know that each person is an individual and that those adjustments or that support that you put in place one day might look very different in three months time or six months time and being able to keep that conversation going so I think um you're absolutely right it does feel very different for every single person um and I think late diagnosed and there's lots of females that are getting late diagnosed at the moment it is that has you have to get to a period of acceptance but it can be quite traumatic to get there um it is it's it's hard it's hard it's not it's not like yay I now understand myself it's like oh my goodness me there's there's regret there's there, there is anger there is a disappointment um there is what what might I have done differently had I known um 
so it's yeah it's yeah there I think there's a lot of trauma caught up with it, isn't it? And and I didn't uh, connect it with uh, trauma always until the the way that um, specialists, cleverer people than me, in in this space of the of the human mind, uh, were, were connecting the, the trauma, the triggers, the things that you didn't even realise had such a, an effect to you, and therefore you were just. Mm-hmm. I think the masking I find interesting as well. Sometimes I would maybe call it. Maybe this is just a me thing or a more a masculine thing. I don't know, but it's lying to yourself, right? That you, it, so uh, less masking, more like I, I don't feel sad or I don't get emotional or I don't do that. And really, you're just putting layers of this, these lies to yourself to that, that you don't, so that you don't have to think about it or cope with it or deal with it. And so then, from yeah. a, a mask perspective, I think it's even it's a thicker, heavier, deeper mask. You're not even aware the mask is there. It's so thick um, that that you couldn't even remove it if you wanted to in that moment. And therefore, these layers of the mask that need to come off also has an impact. And as you take some of them off, there's there's some pain that that exists within that because you take it off and and there's vulnerability that you've not let out before. That all of a sudden you have to deal with that vulnerability. And from a human perspective, I, I find that quite a difficult part of the journey to both yeah. still maintain positivity, supporting others, trying to make a difference, but also at the same time yourself thinking, right, there's some stuff that you've not dealt with that you now have to deal with if you want to be able to progress forwards and, and support others. Yeah. But um, Sorry, I was, I just briefly on that, I was going to say, I think... Um, this whole bring your whole self to work narrative is sometimes a little bit unhelpful, uh, particularly for those that mask, because that suggests that that you can take the whole mask off. And actually that unmasking process is is difficult. As you, you just said, it's like which it's, it's layered. And, and sometimes you maybe even I don't know what's at the bottom of those layers because I have lived with the mask on for so long. But um, working in this space with with neurodivergent individuals, I know that people find it difficult to trust, to be vulnerable. Um, And I think, yes, absolutely. Feel supported, feel like you can trust, feel like you can start to take the mask off. But the expectation is you don't have to take it all off all at once if you're not comfortable doing so. Um, it could, yeah. I, I, so this whole bring your whole self to work piece sometimes for those with, with who are neurodivergent can be quite conflicting. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to add that uh, based on my own experience working with with neurodivergent people in this space. Well, I think this is a wonderful segue through to, I guess, the next part of the conversation, which is, wait, okay, when you think about um, this centre of excellence and when you took this role on, right mm-hmm. through to winning the award, take us through the journey. What what was the initial idea and concept? What was the involvement? What did you focus yep. on? Um, and, and what is it in the end that you had that you were able to present as the concept that that the, the won the award. Um, and, and so yeah. Yeah. let's start breaking it down from the beginning and take it through the steps. And we don't need to go too deep into the detail, no. but just so that uh, people listening can understand uh, where you were bringing your lived experience and the lived experience of members of the team to be able to break down some of the barriers that existed. And just as a just to highlight for people, uh, organisations are complex, right? As is the education system, as is the political yeah. system. So I'm just going to say that, that breaking down barriers, cutting through red tape is very, very difficult indeed. So we're never going to achieve everything that we want through a process like this. The whole point is to identify where there is opportunities, where you can make changes and adaptations, where you can help, and where there are barriers, you let individuals coming through know that potentially there may be a barrier um, uh, and I know that's been really important to the work that you've been doing. 
um, yeah. to ensure that you can do the best that you can within the confines of what you have and then iterate and then try and inform the business on how you can make improvements. Um, yeah, that is my recruitment hat on of trying to help the wider world understand what they don't see is these very, very busy, hardworking recruiters behind the scenes working with not always everything that they would like to have as a tool to be able to achieve what they need to. We sometimes have to build the plane in flight, which is quite complex. Um, so I, that, that's just my recruiter's hat to the rest of the world before you get started, Tanya. No worries. Um, so uh, the, 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 the neurodiverse center of excellence model, as I said, is they start out in the US and they have developed um, what is basically a skills based assessment process. But um, so initially, in terms of building the first team in Manchester, we worked very closely with our US colleagues. So for me, it was all about being a sponge. Um, it was picking about their, picking apart their process, trying to understand it, trying to apply it to the UK market. Um, and th there's, I guess, three key stages. There's the candidate attraction. So what we do differently in that space is um, we don't put these jobs on on the uh, standard platforms that you would think of. So Total Jobs, Indeed, LinkedIn are usually the, the, the things that people come up with. Um, but we spent a lot of time building an external ecosystem of charities, of organisations, of universities, um, particularly DEI parts of universities, to try and identify candidates for these roles. Um, so the, the narrative was very much around, I'm not looking for the person who would naturally apply for EY. I was seeking those people that wouldn't be. So uh, the NCOE was all about those that were underemployed or unemployed. How do we attract them to us as an organisation? Um, so the candidate attraction piece was 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 key. We then um, job descriptions we we tweaked. Uh, the US helped us with that, and then we went through this four stage assessment process. And what was really interesting is everybody that applied got an interview. Um, and that interview was incredibly informal. It wasn't competency based. It was purely about getting the person comfortable to talk a bit about why they wanted the role and to apply for the role in the first place. Um, the things that we were testing were technical expertise. Ultimately, that's what we were looking for is not how technical are you right now, but how can you potentially learn around technology? So if you think about technology as a whole, and um, it's changing all of the time. I'm looking for the person that's quite comfortable that the technology is going to change. And how are they potentially going to solve that problem when it is changing? Um, but also those that, that love to just dive into code um, that might spend a lot of their time doing that, but might, might not be doing it for an organization at, the, at that stage. So the recruitment process, as I said, there are four stages, but the, the first three parts of that were the first stage. And that um, the first three parts were were you couldn't get um, declined in the first three parts. So you'd have a conversation with me um, or one of my team. We'd then ask you to do a, a technical test, um, which was a, a self um, a do at home. Uh, it was it was based on, as I said, how have they approached the problem as opposed to getting it completely right? That was that was really important. And then the follow up was a conversation about exactly that. How have you approached it and um, how did you find it? How did that, that feel in terms of um, your your you being put in a situation where you might not necessarily understand the technology? Post that, they were then invited to something called Super Week. Uh, which is what the US has has built. Um, and this is a, it used to be five days, it's, it's now three, but it's a work simulation. And it's online, so it's, it's accessible from, from that perspective. You don't need to go to a physical office. Uh, and it is all about us getting to know the individuals, but then getting to know us as well. And we were really clear in our messaging the whole way through. It's like, this has to be right for you. And the one thing I do say to anybody, then I, I get quite a lot of people that drop into my, my inbox asking, um, 
do I disclose? It's like, well, if the organization isn't willing to support you now, they're probably not going to be willing to support you once you actually join. So creating that psychological safety upfront um, was was really important to us. So through that uh, uh, work simulation, we did that. Um, and that was all a combination of technical and um, some some exercises where we, we put people into small groups um, and we saw how they engaged with, with problem solving. Um, and for me, it was all about looking at how are they engaging? Is that engagement verbal? Are they writing in the chat? Because that's just as valuable. Um, and just looking and, and hearing and reading the ideas that those individuals had. And at the end of that, we then um, made offers. So of the first that first super week, we had 10 people come through and we made offers to seven of them. So it was it's a really powerful process. Um, what I then did around recruitment was because I was learning from the US, I was like, OK, this is great in terms of a skills based process, in terms of a skills based assessment uh, process. But what was missing? Um, and sometimes some of the, the language used in the emails, the emails were quite long. It, I was like, is this as accessible as it can be? Um, so I got together uh, the, the technologists that joined us, um, a few of us, and um, I sat down and I said, right, they used to hate seeing my name in their inbox because usually I wanted them to give me feedback. I was I'm constantly saying, right, tell me, does this work? Does this work? This is that's the way I work is like I need I need you to tell me what's broken because then I can fix it. Um, so I got this this uh, group of us together and we had. It must be about two hours in Manchester. It wasn't supposed to be two hours. We went into massive hyper focus and we literally sat there and went, that didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work. And we just pulled it apart. And it was it was a really good way for us to go, right, how can we do this differently? Um, that's what I took to, to Sam Ramsey and team. It was like, right, we have some ideas. We want to we want to try some things. Um, and I would I'd would like you to potentially help us do that, which they they got on board with. Um, what changed? I think there's, there's a number of things. Uh, we brought in some tech. Um, so we, we implemented a, a system called Beamery um, that helped us communicate in a in a much more structured way um, that gave us the opportunity to keep candidates up to date um, throughout the process. So one of the things we know around um, recruiting with people who are neurodivergent is that you have to be really clear on your timescales. So if you're going to say you're going to do something, you need to do it, because if you don't do it by that timescale, it potentially causes anxiety and stress for that individual. Um, and even that, and I, 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 this shouldn't be the case, but even that from a recruitment perspective is not always consistently applied. Uh, I know the amount of times I've potentially uh, heard that if you've gone for a job interview, you're not getting feedback quick enough or you're you're not getting um, what's the next stage? How long am I going to have to wait to hear to the next stage? It it's it's not great. And particularly if you're neurodivergent, that is incredibly stressful. So we are very clear on the timescales. Um, not only were we very clear on the timescales, we told people what those timescales were. So we laid it out in a way that these are the different stages that you need to go through. Um, and this is how long it will take before you hear from us. And we stuck to it. So we made sure we are doing that and that the technology definitely helps with that. Um, we then thought about how people are receiving information. So uh, I had somebody in the team who was super dyslexic. Um, that's how he described himself. And he said to me, getting really lengthy emails is just not good for his brain so um we took a step back and we we're like right maybe what we can do is we can provide this this information in multiple formats so every single bit of communication that went out people had the option to choose as to how they received that information so do they want it in video do they want it as an audio clip do they want it as a, a lengthy email or would they like it as an infographic and I know how my brain works. Infographics are great. See a process. Brilliant. 
So um, we produced all of that information into multiple formats to be able to send that out to people. Um, the other thing worth mentioning is the language and how this was positioned externally to candidates. Um, so very quickly, we realised that actually that psychological safety piece is super important and you need to start doing that from the moment that person applies to a role or even sees the job ad advertisement or the, the job spec starting to build that psychological safety. So what we did is we included throughout the process that they went through um, videos from the team, videos from me, um, re-emphasising all of the time. If you need any support, just let us know what you need and we will try and accommodate that for you. Um, we shared stories. We shared vulnerabilities. I told them about my own diagnosis. So you could instantly start to build this sense of I'm joining a, a group of people that genuinely understand this and want to help me. Um, and I think that's really important. We also uh, did things like I don't care if you're wearing a hoodie to the interview, because I know sometimes feeling comfortable is more important than putting a shirt on. Um, I don't care if you've got blue hair and you have tattoos, because none of those things matter as to whether or not you can do that job. So it was it was about saying, please be comfortable with who you are, because we want you to be in an environment where you can show your absolute best self without having to worry about an itchy label or covering something up because you don't you want you you're worried about being judged but equally I don't care if you don't make eye contact it doesn't matter I don't care if you pause part way through an interview because you need to collect your thoughts I will give you the space to be able to pause if you need me to repeat a question I'll repeat the question in fact I'll give you the interview questions up front if that makes this easier for you um so it really was around how do you how do you soften the process and how do you take away as much of the anxiety as possible that means that people can genuinely turn up and be their best selves throughout on the day through the process. Um, and I had every single thing we did, we tested with the team. So none of this was that every idea was um, was pulled apart, agreed with, said it was a good idea, said it was a bad idea. If something was a bad idea, we had a, a potential uh, video that we were making. People didn't like it. We scrapped it. It, we, it was really important that the community that this was going to impact were on board with what we're doing. So everything was tested. Um, so I think that's probably... It's in a nutshell from a recruitment perspective. It's it's not it's not none of this is rocket science. It's just about asking the questions and thinking differently. Some of it really is pushing the boundaries in terms of of how we've been taught to recruit. I, I started in recruitment, as you pointed out. Um, I still remember that eye contact and being clear and concise were two of the competencies that I was absolutely hammered into me when I was trained as to, to look out for. Um, and I think if we would handshake, a good handshake. I, and I mean, a firm handshake, yeah. 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 And if we truly want to be neuroinclusive, we need to start thinking differently about this stuff. Absolutely. And what would you say after all of those experiences? Clearly, um, it went well. There was a lot of learnings from it. Um, what were what would you say are the um, the most significant things that you learned from the process that maybe would inform you know what you did next time? Where are the opportunities do you see for improvements in the future, um, or maybe any of the other barriers that uh, other individuals, organisations can consider that they may come up against that yeah. may save them some time and energy from your experience. Um. The number one is getting the job description right. Um, I think it was interesting talking to my my super dyslexic colleague. He said all I was interested in was the, the, the title of the job, 
what the job was and how much it was going to pay me. Um, he said, and if you think about job descriptions, they are just full of fluff. They genuinely are just, I read them sometimes. I'm like, the first section about the organisation, it's just all in corporate speak. It's not accessible at all. Um, so trying to think differently about job descriptions, how do you, you, you present the most important information first? But also... Um, People who are neurodivergent, if they don't tick every box, they won't apply. So change the language. Change the language to, um, I want you to be able to do four of the below, as opposed to all of the below. Um, or change the language around, these are some of the skills you might need to demonstrate in this role, but we understand you might need support with some of these skills. It doesn't. You don't need to do all of them perfectly. Stop using things like a great team player. I don't know what that means. How do you demonstrate that? I think there are, so there are really simple things. And it is, it's just about thinking about it differently. And I think for people that are genuinely um, uh, keen to do something different in the neuroinclusion space, there are lots of different steps. But if you can start with your job description, and you can you can make that more accessible. Uh, you can don't just write if you want adjustments, please contact me at the bottom as your token tick box exercise. Really start to think about things differently. And then there's multiple steps after that. But I think if I was saying to anybody, if there's one place to start, that is a really good place to start. Brilliant. And, and I know that you've done a lot of work on the, the content uh, and the accessibility and the variety. Interestingly, through work that I've done with other organisations, even this is just to be mindful of even if you get the job description right, you might even get the advert right and they're brilliant. If you then inadvertently pick um, an image that does not um, show what you're trying to explain um, in the right light, you can uh, do away with all of that. So you made a good point. And this is more, um, I, I know you've done great work in this, but it's more when I've seen others try this and then like forget about the small little detail yeah. of the image that they put on a social media post, for example, where they use a great place to work or something. And the, the image of the person in the video is stuck at somebody not looking very happy as a, just a really basic example. So you might write stuff you might write a great job advert, a great job description, but then you put it in a in a community, um, let's say for parents uh, of ND kids, right? Because yeah. you want to track some of those individuals because you know of the additional challenges they go through. So they're resilient. They can advocate for themselves and their children. There's loads of skills in there that you yeah. really do want. And you've even thought about adapting um, working hours and everything. You've done it all, right? You're amazing. But then you go and put that image in there of somebody that looks like they're not very happy at all, just because <laughs> they've inadvertently put at a funny moment in the video. Yeah. And then you know, the description, it, you know, the, or whatever it is. It, so I think sometimes you go to all these efforts and it's the really simple thing around how you present that content, who you choose. So your partners of who you choose matters. Yeah. Because if they don't understand context of what you're talking about and you and your team have done incredible work which you did to really understand what's important and then you partner with a social media team that don't get it right and then all of a sudden i'm going off a bit here but i just know because i've seen over the years now of getting involved in uh, this space is that there is now some really good work and and it can be undone by the simplest of little things because you forget about the minutiae of detail around the content and how you get it out there and where it goes. And um, so, yeah, it just, sorry, that just popped into my mind no, as, a, you, as an immediate. Yeah, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And uh, I unfortunately was the face of a lot of what we did. And there were so many pictures of me all over LinkedIn that it actually started to freak me out a little bit. Um, and uh, yeah, I, most of them, I think I was caught in an okay <laughs> looking friendly enough but um it's a really good point um yeah very very good point well made it is it is it's the, it's the small details that 
you might miss that it makes a real difference to somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that is the, the level of sensitivity from individuals based on their background and experience. Mm. Also, the, um, the, the thinking about, is this going to be the same as what I've experienced before? And we know this, right? We know this from, oh, the amount of D&I leaders that appeared after Black Lives Matters, and then the amount of D&I leaders who've disappeared again um, in, in, in prominent positions in organisations. The amount of uh, individuals who are ND who've been marginalised, stigmatised, faced barriers, ended up in organisations where it's been really difficult for them. I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of from the community from us uh, hypersensitivity around um, what's now being portrayed. Even even AD, the, the post the other day around ADHD technology and support, right? And like all of a sudden overnight, there's like everything has a tag of ADHD on it. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Because it's, yeah. so I think all these things are really important and that's where we can learn from the, the level of energy and effort and the very um, attention to detail. And I think also what you mentioned there, which is the constant learning. So we did this, actually it didn't work. We now know why it's not working and we're now going to change it. Yes. Um, and I know from speaking with you and the team and others involved that there was a lot of that going on, constantly uh, iterating, making adaptations, changes, considerations, yeah. understanding that you've not got it perfect, but yeah. you want to get it right consistently. And you're embedded in the process to get it right. Whereas unfortunately, and this is a problem we've got to solve in recruitment, I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of firefighting that's going on that when we try to solve something, we may give it a go, but then we quickly are pulled away from it to focus on other stuff. So you have people with lived experience, with passion, with energy, but yeah. the overall budget investment is not there to get consistency. So that, again, is what I've seen. Um, yeah. that, that Having the centre of excellence, having you and others involved to focus in and on a period of time to go, no, we're going to stay with this and, and see it through. I think, um, from an external perspective, uh, has made a difference. Yeah, and I, I think you're absolutely right. The uh, the Ripple, so graduate recruitment, we've we've spent some time talking to them, and they've they've put in place a neurodiversity champion within graduate recruitment now. Um, they have asked me to come in and, and look at certain things for them. So so having that, uh, it, it's not. The most important thing for me is I don't want it to just be me that understands this stuff. I want to educate people. I want people to learn. I want people to start thinking this way because we can make a much bigger impact that way rather than it just being one person that holds all of the knowledge. So going in, understanding how they do something, providing recommendations, but more importantly, others getting it um, and, and then starting to apply it is, is super important. Um, we make a much much bigger impact, much quicker if we do it that way. Brilliant. So on that on that nice reflection then, um, any any somebody else who's now going on this journey and maybe they might not have the resources um, or, or the overall focus, but they might be given the role and responsibility to start something um, to, to get going um, in mm -hmm. their own organisation. Um, what would be your, uh, any advice, key tips, thoughts, that you may provide to them as they begin this journey? Um, come and find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> we talk about this all the time. Uh, I, I post a lot about recruitment. Uh, so yeah, absolutely, please do that. Uh, we do talk to our clients about what we do. So we, we're often having conversations, Sam and myself, um, are out talking to a number of organisations who are very interested in this area. So um, yeah, very happy to chat to you. But equally um i think i think what the ncoe has done has been as, as i said somewhere to pilot things so start small don't try and fix all of it all at once take maybe one part of the recruitment process and and think about it for one specific business area and try something test it see if it works and then roll it out i think you have a much bigger impact that way than uh trying to do all of it at once um, or, uh, yeah, trying to do the whole organisation at once. So just I'd start small, test it, pilot it, 
and then make a bigger impact as a result of, of the learnings that you get from that first piece. Yeah, brilliant. And then that gives you the opportunity. And I think that's where then the commitment comes in to go, this is something that we're trialing and we are going to take it then to the next level. That commitment to, to what the next stage looks like phase, not break it down in, because you will know, right, you need the learnings and the data and the insights, but to know yeah. next we want to take it to a, a different region, a different business group or um, yes. But, but to start where the energy is, I've always found very powerful. Start where people have uh, the energy to really uh, take this on board. Because yeah. it isn't easy, right? But it yeah. does, it is impactful. And yeah. I think that is the real difference. Both impactful on a business performance perspective. Um, but if we think around our responsibilities to the planet, to the rest uh, of the humans who exist on this planet, um, I think we've got a social responsibility. Yeah. Uh, and I, I truly believe that the future of the planet uh, is going to depend on uh, neuroinclusion, that we ensure that we give access to opportunity to make a positive difference to all thinking types. Because if we don't, I think that's where we become at, at risk. Um, so well done. Thank you for the, the work that you do, Tanya. Um, and a real pleasure to have you on. And yes, um, if they go and find you, Tanya Martin, on LinkedIn, best platform, anywhere else people can reach out to you or anything else you'd like yeah. to share as we bring us to a close. No, thank you just so much for having me. It's a, a really important conversation, so very pleased to be having it. Brilliant. Real pleasure. Thank you again. And uh, yeah, please do reach out to Tanya uh, if you have any questions or you want to connect. You've been listening to Neurodiversity with Theo Smith. Please do sign up, get involved, uh, write some comments, give us five stars if you think you like the show and do share it with others. We've grown significantly this year and we would like to grow further and get out to as many people as possible. And by all means, if you want to be on the show, if you've got some ideas, please let us know. Also, sign up for Neurodiversity with Theo Smith on YouTube, and you'll be able to watch more insights, entertaining, fun, and great videos to help you within the workplace and within life. See you soon.